Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, but they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a long, long time friend. Uh, You're in the category, Tamara, of people who I like the most and see the least, Um, sadly. But we haven't seen each other in how many years? It's been way too long. But we've known each other for like 50 years. At least, at least since Roosevelt, I will, 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 will not say which Roosevelt. Um, and uh, you've had a legendary career in the music business, which we're going to talk about. Uh, and we met when you were editor of Billboard, and I believe the first female to ever serve as editor of Billboard. That's right. And you were just starting Advertising Week. Yeah. So that would have been about, you know, 2004. Yeah. Um, and then I know shortly thereafter, we had you on stage with John Bon Jovi. That was very memorable. That's right. But I want to start tomorrow. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? Because we're starting now. I'm sitting. I'm, I'm ready. So I want to take you back to 1985. And I want to talk about the Hotel Nacional <laughs> in Rio de Janeiro. And you on stage playing the piano, the electric keyboard, (laughs) and singing with Ray Conniff, your father. Joy playing with Daddy on stage. It's kind of like an honor for me to, for with him, thank trombone and me the piano. It's kind of like we do at home, but we're bringing it to the public of Brazil and it's making a lot of people happy. And that makes me happy too. And I had great hair. I had like a feathered hair. It's all about it's, it's it's a remarkable piece of video. <laughs> Tamara Conant. Yes, I, um, I, I was so blessed that a that my dad was Ray Conniff, and b that he took his family with him everywhere. He was one of those artists where he did not tour without my mom and I, and um, I got to play with him, which in and of itself was kind of nerve wracking because he was such a perfectionist and I knew that. So I really had to come with like a plus plus game when, when I was on stage with him and got to play with some of the best musicians in the world and uh, travel Latin America and, you know, play piano and sing and uh, have big eighties hair. It was great.
And you were smiling in the clip I saw the entire time. Your dad was smiling the entire time. That must have been just magical. It was really magical. It was sort of like my father and I always connected musically, like from the time that I was a really little girl. We would sit around in his, you know, back office room and listen to Artie Shaw records together for hours and just listen. And um, I was always in the recording studio with him. And as I got older, I, I played in sessions. I even got to mix a couple songs for him, which was a really big deal, you know, because again, my dad was just beyond a perfectionist. But we connected there. Like we were kind of like musical soulmates. So it was like our father-daughter time together. I mean, my dad worked with Frank Sinatra. He worked with Tony Bennett. Um, he he worked with all those guys. I think because they were frontmen, they were the singers. They were like the a different kind of thing. And my dad was predominantly a band leader and an arranger. So it it, it just got perceived differently, I think, in terms of like history. Um, but you know, in the in the fifties and sixties, you know, it was Elvis Presley, the Beatles, and Ray Conniff, top three, right, on the charts. Like, you know, I I'm working on a documentary on my dad, and we interviewed Clive Davis about you know his experience working with my dad at CBS, and Clive basically was like, "Your dad saved CBS Records. Like, he made all the money. <laughs> he was a superstar." You know, I, I interviewed Paul Simon once, and he said that when Simon and Garfunkel signed to Columbia, you know, his greatest honor, Paul's greatest honor was being able to meet my dad because my dad was such a big star, you know? So, um, I mean, he recorded a hundred studio albums over the course of his career. Amazing. And I know he played the trombone and he uh, somewhat uniquely was well known, not only as an orchestra leader, but also he loved the singing and the Ray Conniff singers. And he put those both together. Yeah, he decided to use voices as instruments. So where the the voices would mimic like a trump bass trombone or um, a saxophone or a trumpet, and he would use it as different layers. And he was the first artist to ever do that. And it's one of the reasons why he became so popular in Latin America, sort of at the second level of his career when like, you know, when Bob Dylan plugged in the guitar, that kind of pop music, my dad's kind of music started declining in the US and then Latin America basically was like, come join us. Um, because he was using, he wasn't using words, he was using sounds. The singers imitated instruments. So a lot of them are instrumental and he was a hot jazz guy. So, you know, the Latin American countries like picked him up. They loved it. Yeah, it's amazing how so many times our most iconic musicians in those non-pop genres, in jazz and blues and R&B, are more revered abroad than they are at home. Yeah, it's, it's, super, it's super interesting. And that's, that's very true. And we were lucky because it gave him a whole second life, you know, and... In yeah. Latin America. And, and it was actually on the advice of Quincy Jones, 
that he did that. He was invited to judge a big music festival in Chile and he and Quincy were friends. So he called Quincy Jones and was like, what do you think? Should I do it? And Quincy's like, yeah, man, do it, but bring your music because you perform there, it'll open up the gateways of Latin America. And he took Quincy's advice and did that. And that's exactly what happened. He played, you know, this festival that was broadcast over Latin America and was like in an outside arena of like 20,000 people and it like sealed the deal. So that's back when we still had concerts. Right out of college, I um, I moved to New York because I wanted to make it as a writer, and I had I had kind of a not a kind of a chip on my shoulder in the sense of like I wanted to make it. I didn't want to be just Ray Conniff's daughter, you know. I wanted to be a journalist and go out on my own, and 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 so I moved to New York and. Um, just became a copy editor. The first job out of school, I was a copy editor for Kaplan Interactive. Yes, the test prep company. They hired me as an editor and I was uh, my salary was $18,000 a year. So I had to work three jobs to pay my New York rent. And I just freelanced on the side and wrote for free for whoever would publish me in New York. I would just and do you remember anything early that you got published that you thought were well, like, yeah, like I'm on the Oh, way. yeah. You know, I got my first byline. I was actually 17 years old and it was Music Connection, which is a local L.A. rag. And um, I remember I, I got $10 for writing a review. And, and this was a really big deal because I was told that girls couldn't write about rock and roll. I literally was told that like girls can't write about rock and roll. And uh, so that kind of put a bee in my bonnet. And I was at the time, one of the only female rock journalists like that existed. And uh, my first $10, I, I actually gave it to my dad. The first money I ever made. And um, so I actually started, that was the first time I was published. It was a very kind of almost famous kind of thing. My favorite movie, as you know, I do, I do. And uh, and then I just I wrote all through college. And then I um, I freelanced in New York. I wrote for a, a rock magazine called Seconds Magazine. I wrote for um, an entertainment magazine called New York Casting, which basically was backstage of the East Coast. And I just wrote for whoever would take me, basically. And you've sat down and interviewed you know, the, the who's who of pop culture and music in particular, any early interviews that you scored early when you were like sort of ahead of your time and you had no business interviewing that person that you Yeah, got? I, my very first big interview was at the Chelsea Hotel, famous Chelsea Hotel with Nina Hagen. Well, that's yeah. a big one. You know, Nina Hagen is like the godmother of punk who like escaped East Berlin and was best friends with the Sex Pistols. And, you know, she was just, you know, this kind of wild character and she was staying at the Chelsea Hotel and I, I got to go interview her. And, you know, Nina 
was, you know, bananas. She talked about aliens and space invaders and music and singing to Johnny Rotten. And uh, she gave me a signed book from her um, guru, some Indian guru she was really into. I still have it. It's signed from Nina Hagen with like hearts and stuff. But yeah, I remember sitting in the lobby of the Chelsea Hotel, terrified. You know, like, oh, I'm going up to interview Nina Hagen. I had all my notes and I'd done research for like weeks and it was exciting. That's amazing. So I, uh, not nearly with your level of accomplishment, but I love to write also. And I remember the first big interview I did, I was about 15. We went to the old Ritz, which is now Webster oh, Hall. Yeah. And, it, and it was the first time the English oh. beat came to America. And I interviewed Ranking Roger. And I remember that we went for pizza on 14th Street. And I wrote wow. an article. It was in my high school paper. But here's what I can't remember. I don't remember how I did it. Like, how did I get to him? <laughs> I have no memory because we didn't have the internet, right? You didn't have, I didn't, did I write a letter to someone? You know, like, how did you get to Nina Hagen? Do you remember? I mean, honestly, at that point, it was phone calls, like on a, like, a hard line. You call right, humans a real, a real phone. on a real phone and left right. messages that are requests on voicemail on phones, or you wrote I you guess, wrote letters. Right. I mean, my first job I got because I wrote a letter. I got you. That's how you got jobs. You looked. I would pick up the New York Times. I would look at the classifieds. <laughs> Right, right. And I would send my resume to the address, you know, like, that's how we did it. Amazing. Yeah, I, I just, you know, some of that stuff, like, leaves your memory, and I don't remember how I did anything, but clearly something happened. Yeah, no, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I remember going to the library and, like, researching publications that might take my work, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. just... And then you had to hustle. If you got your foot in, you had to hustle. I was very oddly protective about like my dad, you know, I, I would lie and say he wasn't my dad, which broke my heart, but I never wanted anyone to, I didn't want any nepotism. You know, that, that was a big issue for me. It really wasn't until he died that everyone figured it out because they saw the obit and they were like, what? Um, and then all these phone calls started coming in from people in the business who knew me. And, uh, but I was so proud of him. You know, no one could be prouder, you know, and I would sneak away and like join him on tour and not tell, <laughs> not tell anyone I'd like disappear to Brazil for four days and like, be like, Oh, I just, I was not feeling well. <laughs> <laughs> And you hustled your way to a managing editor job at a pretty young age. Go back to Entertainment Drive. What do you remember of that time? Yeah, so Entertainment Drive was sort of during the first digital boom, you know, in New York. It was, you know, what do they call it? They called it like Silicon Alley. And, um, you know, there was a lot of money floating around for these startups that basically had no business model. And, you know, they all failed after a couple of years. But Entertainment Drive had raised a ton of money um, and they were launching a, you know, one of the first digital platforms. It was a competitor to, to Mr. Showbiz at the time. And he basically was trying to put print online 
and we were using Java that didn't work and browsers that were ancient and we were doing, you know, chats. I mean, we did a live chat with Cindy Crawford. That was sort of the big get. And uh, it was a great experience because I got to actually really understand technology. I got to really be sort of at the front lines of what the internet can do, like what that means, you know, at a time where nobody really was into that. That wasn't a thing. And, um, you know, as with a lot of those companies during that boom, they all, you know, there was no, there was no model behind it. There was no business model behind it. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. The number of brands that appeared and disappeared, you know, during that time period, but they were all onto something. They just hadn't figured it out yet, I guess. They were too young. It was too early. Like the, the, the technology wasn't to where the vision was, right? The technology was so clunky you couldn't like get done what you imagined and there wasn't enough of an audience that was adopting it. So you were running into like a twofold and they were spending money, right? It was like during such a boom in that area that they just were, were not, no one was, was doing it the right way. So you then go on and write for two great publications uh, one that I used to love, and I don't even know, is amusement business even around in any form? No, anymore? it's not. It's not. I yeah, love I love that. That was a great publication. Yeah, I took over. Who was the editor? Was it was it Tom Powell? Yeah. Is that her name? I remember. Yeah, and I took over as, yeah. as the music, all the music coverage for AB. And then um, I was music editor of The Hollywood Reporter, um, which was a really big deal, you know, because I I started out at The Wire. I was at the BPI Newswire, which was also owned by the as a parent comp by the same parent company as a Hollywood reporter. And I wrote about music and junkets and I wrote for the wire service. So I would get picked up, I don't know, by the Boston Globe or whatever. And they had an opening at the Hollywood Reporter and I got recommended. And they gave me the job. <laughs> And uh, I became a daily journalist back when print was daily and you would, every morning, I would run to the newsstand at like 6 a.m. and pick up the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, Variety, and see who I beat or who beat me. That was the game. So let's talk about your, you touched on something before. Um, but there weren't a lot of women no. doing what you were doing. No, there were no women. Talk, talk about that. And, you know, did you ever have any of those moments where, you know, something clearly was skidding off the, uh, the rails? Oh, yeah, all the time. You know, but I think my generation, Gen X, and, and, and I've, I've done some reading on this. It's interesting. We were, like, really thick-skinned. You know, it was sort of like you had to fight and that was just part of it, you know, and, and, and that was part of succeeding and you had to be smarter, faster, work harder. If someone, you know, made an off color or sexually harassed you, you just had to give it right back to them and tell them where they could put that. Cause that usually made people back off pretty quick, you know, and you had to be better than everybody. You had to really like prove yourself. But what I found was, um, once you kind of pass that initial hurdle of, okay, I'm a woman. 
okay, no, I'm not going to sleep with you. Oh, and I'm really good at what I do. Everyone would be like, okay. <laughs> and it wouldn't matter anymore. Right. And so I know that sounds weird, but that's just kind of how it worked. You know, I, the best example I can give you, I mean, I think my dad taught me this, which is odd. You know, when he was in the big bands, you know, they had girl singers. It was like a whole bunch of guys. And then the girl singer would get on the tour bus and they would hit the road and, you know, the girl singers would perform. And the, most of these big bands had, had one girl singer. And when he was with Artie Shaw, you know, these guys are drinking and smoking weed and these, and they're like on the road, which is kind of like being in prison. And these girls walk on the bus and they just go at them you know, and cat column and whatever. And my dad used to tell me, he's like the girls that would come in and kind of giggle at it, they would, they would just get eaten alive. But the girls that came on the bus who drew the line and gave it back, everyone would back off and they would make it. Is that fair? Should it be like that? Of course not. But that's when I came up, that's what it was. And once you proved that you were as good as any man, then it didn't even matter that I was a woman anymore. Like it didn't even like come up. Hey, listen, we have so far to go still as a culture on all of those issues. But, you know, within my lifetime, I remember when it was a big deal that they let Mary Tyler Moore wear pants, you know, in a sitcom. And that he, and on Carl Reiner's original sitcom, The Dick Van Dyke Show, you may recall they slept in separate beds. And when they would show the bedroom, and they were both slept in separate beds. Yes, like kind of small single beds yeah. with a night table in between. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, amazing. Boy, I better hurry up. He'll be here any minute. It's, uh, I mean, and thankfully we've come a long way. And I think that there are women that, you know, if I, 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 I fought so that I could like break the ceiling and 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 allow other women to to come up, but we didn't think about it when you're young and trying to make it. Like, you just kind of our generation. We just plowed through because we had no choice. There was no laws that could protect us. If we wanted to like sue someone for sexual harassment, you might as well just like that's it. You're dead in the water. You had to figure out a way to deal with it. You had no, there, the laws weren't gonna protect you. They were just gonna kill your career. Now it's thankfully very different, but back then that's just what it was like. And you talk about breaking the glass ceiling. Well, you not only broke it, but you shattered it when you became the first female editor at Billboard. Beyonce certainly doesn't have to do this. I think she really wants to do this. I think it's also strategic for her to be doing this. Tamara Conniff, executive editor of Billboard magazine, says Beyonce's not taking a risk, but maybe becoming an even bigger star. Building up parallel tracks for careers in today's music market is extremely smart. John Kilcullen was the publisher at the time. Um, the music industry sort of um, had a coup in terms of they the heads of all the companies would call me and be like, you need to be the editor of Billboard. And I'd be like, uh, and they're like, we're gonna call the publisher and tell him that you need to be the editor of Billboard. Um, so it was, I was kind of like pushed, cause I didn't think that I, 
I, I just didn't, it wasn't in my realm of possibility. And then I sort of got, once I got inspired enough by having enough people tell me that it's what I needed to do, you know, I met with, with the publisher and I basically said to him, I said, um, Billboard's a mess. It's getting ready to go uh, monthly. It's sinking. And if you want me to come on, you have to let me change the whole thing within six months because you got one shot with a new editor. But if you don't let me do that, I'm going to fail. And if and then, then don't give me the job. Unless you're going to let me do X, I, I don't, don't hire me. Okay. So this is a, a an incredible pivot point for you because you were a writer. Yes. All of a sudden, you not only are running the editorial side of the house, but you take over the business side of the house. Where did that, where did that come from? The business side was an accident. I mean, what happened was I became editor and then because I had so many relationships in the business, you know, like, music executives would call me and be like, oh, I want to do this partnership with Billboard and maybe we can do X. And and I'd be like, great, talk to business development over here. And they would go talk to the business development people and they call me back and be like, they don't know what they're doing. And I want to deal with you because they're not music people. I don't know who these people are. And, and so it kept on like getting punted back to me. So just to have the brand succeed, I was like, well, okay, I'll do it. What kind of, so I started teeing up all the business deals to make sure that the music community was getting what they needed, right? Because a, a corporate business development person is not gonna really understand what I understand about the music business as the right. editor. Right. And in order for me to make sure that I'm delivering what people are coming to me to deliver, I need to do it. So that's basically how it happened. Cause I wanted to super serve the music community. You know, I was a, a magazine for the music community and my goal was to give them actionable information so they can grow their business. And when I redesigned it, I did a tour. I went to every CEO and I asked two questions. I said, what am I doing wrong? What is Billboard not giving you? And I took everyone's advice. And then I took all their advice and I took the ideas that I thought were meaningful. And I put together a mock of the redesign and then I went back to everyone. And I was like. And you turned it around. And I got, because I got everyone's buy-in before I even like hit stands again with the new design. Everyone knew people felt a part of it, right? They felt like they were being heard and that they were going to get something valuable, something that was going to like help them grow their business. Like I made the charts interactive. Like you read the charts before, you didn't know why something jumped 20 spots. They'd have to hire data people to figure that out. I had data people. So the charts, you read the chart section, there's a little bullet point that says this jumped 20 points because it was on Oprah. So I'm providing them with information that's valuable to them, that justifies, you know, $500 a year subscription and advertising. So, so you come across in that period an incredible cast of characters on the, biz on the business side, at the labels, managers, and of course, talent. 
we can't, we, you know, we're going to be here all month if we go through all of them, but give me some of your favorites from that time, favorite conversation, someone who surprised you, someone who was just a favorite of yours. Well, you know, there were so many, but I remember um, the, one of the biggest honors I had when I became editor, Lior, Lior Cohen, who was head of Def Jam at the time said, I'm going to throw you a party and like, invite who you want. So sort of I put together kind of a wish list of sort of music people that I want to just have like a gathering for, you know, to meet me because not everyone had met me. And um, Lior opened his home uh, for me to do that. And Ahmet Erdogan came because he wanted to meet the new editor. And it was like, you know, what an honor. I mean, for me, when I started in the business, oh my God, I would sit at the feet of people who had built our business. You know, I would sit at Doug Morris's feet. You know, I would like sit at Clive's feet, you know, like, cause they were like the architects of our, they meant something, you know, now nobody cares about who came and who did what. But when I came up, those were our giants and they had the keys to the kingdom. They had the knowledge, right? And if you listen to them, maybe some of that knowledge would rub off on you. So I think getting to um, sit down with Amit and become friends with him was, was for me, like on a professional level, like a really big deal. You know, on an interview level, you know, my God, I got to like have a beer with Bono. That was, how cool is that? Right. 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 <laughs> you know, I got to just, you know, be a part of change. I got to be a part of a growing business and it was, it was pretty exciting. And that was also a time when you talk about change and there were things that had happened before going back to, you know, the early stuff that Bob Geldorf did and, oh, yeah. um, you know, some of those events, but you were there at a time when the consciousness of music as a force for social change was really starting to flower again. I guess it's happened many times actually in history, you know, you go back to the sixties, you certainly can't forget that right. period, but there was a lot of energy at that time when you were running billboard, you know, for what was going on in the world from the music business. Hey, thanks, for you. And thanks for coming to Live 8 and, uh... This, of course, has to do with the G8, and uh, those people are pretty G8, but uh, the person we're going to introduce to now would really make them guys look not so cool. This is probably the best song ever written, and here's the best singer in the world, Mr. Richard Ashcroft. Yeah, it meant, it really, like, meant something, you know. It felt like that, at least. People had something to say. think the industry still has some of those, you know, really great inspirational minds that were those giants or have they all disappeared? You know, it feels like, I think you're seeing it more on the independent side, right? On the stuff that flies like super under the radar. But, you know, the problem is, and this was the problem that started happening, you know, when I was running Billboard is like, you see like, you know, the, the, the conglomeratization of our business where it's not private anymore and it's not run by the founder, you can't make decisions. You can't, you can't be like a nimble company 
if you have, you know, X amount of investors and you're basically being run by a board, that's not like create, it's not, it's not creative. Like Ahmet would have never survived in this environment. You know, it just, it, cause he took so many chances and he would stick with things for like two years because he believed in it. You know, in today's environment, you too would never be you too. You know, it took them forever to break. REM would not be REM. They didn't break after like three records. So you don't have that kind of, um, we're not in a business world where you can stick with something that's not succeeding for that long. You gotta, you, people have gotta cut bait because you have to meet your numbers and you, your job's at risk if you don't do X. And, and it's, it's just, you're beholden to like a different creature because it's not that there's no David Geffen's, there's no Ahmed Erdogan's, there's no. Right. And, and Tamar, what's your take? I mean, the power pendulum music has swung so wildly and almost viciously, you know, where the labels were once omnipotent, less so today. What's your take on the whole rise in the and the digital music scene and, you know, the Spotify's, you know, the Google's, you know, et cetera, and Apple Music, of course, and where the power pendulum has swung Yeah, I mean, the power, over the last, you know, 10 years or so. The power pendulum is definitely on the digital with the digital providers right now, you know, for everything, for streams and playlisting, and they're like the new radio, right? Like, if you don't get playlisted, you're dead in the water. But really, it's like, it's all the record labels' fault, right? And that just goes back to Napster. You know, the record companies took singles off the market because singles were cannibalizing album sales. You could buy a single for like what, $2.99 and an album was like $15, $18.99 or something like that. So they're like, ah, I made this shitty album and no one's buying it, but they're buying the single. But if I take the single off the market, then they'll have to pay $15, $16 for the single, even though the rest of the album is crap, is basically what happened during like the heyday. And the consumer was like, hmm, I can't buy the single and I'm paying a lot of money when I just want one song because the rest of the songs aren't so good. Right? And that's how Napster rose. Like the consumer rebelled. Welcome to Hastings. Most of us head out to a music store to buy CDs, but not Mike Chessworth. I've been using Napster for about a year. He goes to Napster.com to get all the music he wants and he doesn't pay for it. How does he do it? Basically, you log on and then you click download to basically download the initial program. On the website, he can share his MP3 music library free of charge and get access to anyone else's. We type in Britney Spears, B-R-I. And it's now searching all the other users to see how many people might have Britney Spears on their computer. And there are thousands and thousands. So basically, we just hit one. Let's say, uh, oops, I did it again. Double click on that. They're like, okay, I'm just going to rip and steal the songs I want because the record companies will not sell yeah. them to me. It's hard to imagine a worse series of decisions than the labels did, and I guess Sony in particular, and I guess there were legendary stories about, you know, Tommy Mottola and just an aversion to the computer and oh, how, how they completely blew that and opened the door, first Napster and then Apple. Well, no, the digital guys at the labels were like in the basement. 
And they would like climb up the stairs to the executive suite and knock on the door and be like, right. the internet is coming. The internet is coming. And the the, the big executives would be like, it's go back down to the basement. You know, they just, so I think that started it. And then, you know, with the decline in, in sales and then the rise of the digital services and the subscription model, yeah, you know, they hold the power changed. now. Uh, amazing turn of events. So you then move on after Billboard and you do work for some of the real giants of the industry. You work at Frontline, you work at Rock Nation. That's an interesting pair, Irving Azoff and Jay-Z. You know them both, you've worked for them both. I have worked with, I've been blessed enough to work with some of the most like legendary men in, in our business, you know, and learn from them. And I, I feel like, and survive, which is, you know, a whole other thing. Yeah, Irving stole me from Billboard, you know, Billboard changed ownership and um, they, the lines started getting blurry between um, church and state. And I couldn't, I couldn't do that, you know, like I couldn't, Billboard was too important to me. So I, I couldn't let those lines be blurred and still have a staff of journalists and have them respect me for like kind of what I would, cause I was such a devout, you know, journalist in terms of quality and sourcing. And, you know, it was like nothing, you know nothing gets published blind unless there's three confirmed sources that I know about you know, like not just like this, nothing hearsay, you know, all balanced reporting. Like I was very, you know, it, I, it meant a lot to me. It was, it was important to me. And and when that, when those lines started getting blurred, I, I, I knew I needed to leave. And um, so I figured if I'm going to leave, I might as well go to the biggest in the business. Right. And um, right. so I got to join Irving and um learned from him, you know, and it was, it was a wild, it was a wild ride at Frontline. I saw, I was there through, you know, the Ticketmaster Live Nation Frontline merger, um, which was, which was tough, you know, like the FCC was investigating us. It was, it was definitely like big time. Um, and, and talk a little bit about Irving. He, he rose to prominence, uh, I guess most of us know him, uh, from the Eagles. Uh, and I remember when uh, they were inducted into the Rock Hall, you know, Don Henley brought him up and, you know, to them, to he and Glenn and, you know, going way back, you know, Felder, who I know there was a little issue with and uh, the other members of the band, the originals, you know, going back to Randy Meisner and Bernie Ledden and, and then on Joe Walsh and, and Timothy B. Schmidt. Um, but he was an absolute giant and has been probably the most influential figure in the music business for the past 34 yes, years. Absolutely. And he's by far, you know, he's the smartest person in the room and he's always like five steps ahead of everybody. Irving, Irving's business mind works that he is no matter what meeting he's in or what deal he's doing, Irving is already five steps ahead as he's doing it, he's already knows exactly like that's how smart he is. That's how he, his brain works. So, you know, it's like, you know, there would be occasions where I'd be like, but, but you didn't tell me that. 
like, I got all this done. And he's like, oh, I changed my mind. I'm like, you didn't tell me you changed your mind. Like that was yesterday. <laughs> like, you know, you're, he's already like, you know, already conquering like another business that you don't even know about, you know, um, because he's that, he's that smart. And he's devoted, you know what, with his bands, regardless of, you know, he's obviously still manages the Eagles. Doesn't matter how, even when Irving was, you know, like running Ticketmaster and when he was at Live Nation, Don Henley calls, Irving is always available. No matter what. Right. Right. Fantastic. And then you go into another giant. And you go to Rock Nation. Yeah, that was pretty like, yeah, I got to build their publishing business. You know, they, uh, the Jays, um, Jay-Z and Jay Brown brought me in to, you know, build their publishing business and, um, and, and be true to their brand. And it was six incredible years of, you know, hard work and getting some number ones and some Grammy wins and um, building a great little company and being part of something that was really, and especially right now, I think is really important is that it is the largest minority run company. You know, the CEO is a woman, Latina, you know, it is like truly kind of like the poster child of what entertainment companies can be in terms of, of being really true to, to giving people opportunities and the commitment to philanthropy and diversity and um, giving people a shot. You know, Rock Nation is is truly like the poster child for that. Fantastic. We talked about so many uh, incredibly great minds, almost all men. Who were some of the great women that you got to work with or, or know in some way? Uh, you know, over the course of the journey. You know, I would say like probably one of my heroes is still Michelle Anthony. Um, you know, I met her when she was at Sony and, uh, you know, Michelle was a business manager, uh, started as a business manager. She worked with, you know, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and that's how she cut her teeth and, um, as an attorney and ended up being operations and sort of, you know, run stuff when it was super smart. And I remember my first time sitting down with her, you know, we were dealing, there were a lot of legal issues going on in the music industry, like, you know, Napster and, you know, what does it mean? And, and, and what is fair use and the Betamax case. And, you know, there were so many legal issues happening and I really, I'm not a lawyer, but I had to write about them as if I was a lawyer. And so I remember Michelle literally sent me a box of books on copyright law and I read them. I am probably the only journalist who read the entire Betamax case. Um, and so she was a really big inspiration to me as someone who like was powerful and strong and like nice, you know, just like a good, like a good person. But again, like, you know, it's, it is, our business is a lot of men, you know, when I was coming up, but I didn't think about it as like, I didn't separate myself from I'm a woman and you're a man. Like they were, these men were still my heroes. I didn't see myself as different, right? And maybe that's how I was raised too. Like my parents never told me I couldn't do something because I was a girl, you know? So I, I never really like separated 
myself by gender from, from the men that I dealt with, you know, I think, which was interesting. I think the only time I really felt where the glass ceiling was, was, you know, during the merger, the Ticketmaster Live Nation frontline merger, I was one of the highest ranking women. And in mergers, a lot of people get cut because there's, you know, excess, right? There's two people doing the same job. So one person has to go. And being the highest ranking woman in all men was fascinating to see because man, there were some, they came after me and I really was like, wow, this is a thing. You know, I never had felt that way at Billboard. I never felt that way, you know, when it was just, you know, me and Irving, you know, but then when we get into this, when we got in this corporate culture and I just sort of sat back and watched all these people juggling for position in this like mega merger, it was, it was pretty, I, it was shocking to me that people behave that way. That makes sense. Hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So you talk about being sort of battle tested in large part by how you were raised by your folks. Let's go back to your dad and talk about what you're doing now. You mentioned a documentary and I know you've been doing a lot of stuff with his catalog. Yeah. So I'm finally able to like get some perspective, you know, um, my mom passed away two years ago, so I'm finally able to kind of have some space, I guess, and, and be able to look at it from a bird's eye view, as opposed to like an emotional view of being able to tell, you know, my dad's story and, and keeping my promise to keep his memory and his legacy alive. Um, and the other thing is too, like so many people I want to interview, they're getting really old and I need to get them on tape. And if I don't do that, I will regret it for the rest of my life, you know? So I was so glad I was able to sit down with Clive before, um, the quarantine to get, um, his insight. And, um, you know, now we're like, you know, doing zoom interviews and like outside socially distanced interviews. It's, 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 you know, we're living in this kind of a world, but the documentary is definitely like a priority working as catalog, working it for sync and sort of mining the music publishing and the masters that I own is a priority. Um, and then I'm also working on um, starting, you know, my own music publishing company because publishing is, you know, it's all about the song, you know, that's like the fun part. Fantastic. Well, it's been a joy of my life to be connected to you uh, all these years. And I knew this would be fun and it really was. I hope you had a good time. Well, you inspire me. You are like, you were one of the people I met, you know, really early on when I started at Billboard. I'm blessed to call you my friend. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.